everybody. Welcome to another episode of Two Strike Noise, your weekly baseball history podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, as usual, Jeff, joining me from the North Pole, the Great North, the Great North. I guess that's what they call Canada. So, I mean, it's kind of like that. You're close and it's very snowy is my co-host as usual, Mark A. Johnston. Mark, you keeping warm? Well, we're, we're more north than you are, so we're, we're the great north. That's fine. Uh, keeping warm, yeah, I just don't go outside. Well, you can't, right? The snow's piled up to the studio door, and you can't. It either. is. Uh, we had to tunnel our way out just to get to the grocery store. It was terrible. Terrifying. All yeah. right. Well, uh, despite the blanket of snow that seems to be <laughs> like encompassing most of the country this week, uh, it's actually pretty nice here. It's been raining finally. But, uh, you know, spring training starts this week. Pitchers and catchers are reporting this week, which is so exciting. Bit, yeah, it's it's exciting. I'm 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 tempered because I just don't know, you know, how uh, how many problems we're going to have this season. We had enough last season once it got started and to try a full season with spring training in Arizona and Florida. Not sure. Yeah. But, uh, hopefully we can. Well, hopefully things go well. Yeah, hopefully they will. Well, let's uh, let's talk some baseball. Let's talk some some baseball history, and we'll warm up as we usually do before we get into the the main part of the show here today. I've got some stuff that I wanted to talk about. I found some really uh, a very interesting story here about Randy Johnson. I think you've heard of him, right? Okay. Randy Johnson, Randall. Yeah, Randall no, Johnson? he's a. Yeah, I think so. He's a tall guy, left-hander, funny beard. <laughs> yeah. So Randy Johnson, somebody asked him, I don't know where, where I'm reading this, this article. I really only want to read you this quote, but it's something about home security and baseball players. And this is the quote from, from Randy Johnson. He says, quote, I don't own a gun, but I keep a bag of baseballs near my bed. If someone breaks into our house, they better be wearing a batting helmet because I'm throwing at their head, end quote. <laughs> that makes sense to me. Yeah. Well, especially in, well, I don't know, in his, like his expo in early Mariner days, he might just miss. Yeah. Oh, he used to own, uncork some good ones, let me tell you. Oh, yeah. But I mean, you know, also, I get birds probably stay away from his house. They, they probably, you know, yeah. warn, tell the story of Randy Johnson in spring training and that one poor bird that exploded. It never knew when it dove down. I thought I was getting a better look at the game. Yeah. Didn't want to be part of it, but, um, well... Now, it's, uh, I, I'll give the bird this. The bird uh, is more famous than most birds. How's that? I mean, he went out like a champ. Probably painless. Didn't, didn't you know, Probably. just flying and then the next thing, nothing. So that's at least. Yes. But yeah, I w- there's very few things. I Would you rather go step in the ring with 90s Mike Tyson or have Randy Johnson throwing at your head? Oh, well, now if he was going to hit me in the shoulder or the, the hip, then I'd take the Randy Johnson. But at my head, I'll, I'll take my chances with Tyson. <laughs> That's uh... I mean, he'll, he'll whoop me real good. But at least they'll, you know, I'll get punched with something that'll knock me out. And it, it'll be over like that, you know. And whereas I feel like the Randy Johnson, that could knock some teeth out. That's tough. I don't know which one. Those are both pretty. What would you do today? Would you rather get in the ring with Mike Tyson today? You know, he's training to fight again or have Randy Johnson throwing at you today. Tyson looks really good right now. Um, 
But again, I, I can just see Randy just picking up a ball and just like it was yesterday, chucking it right at my head. And I, I, I'd have to go and fight Tyson again. I tell you what, <laughs> I know I'm going to lose. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to lose. But maybe I can run around enough that I can get 10 seconds in or something. Uh, you know, I know for a fact Mike Tyson listens to this podcast and you're basically saying that you're not afraid of Mike Tyson. So if he wants to brawl, I'm ready to go, man. What is the pay on that, by the way? Yeah, Just nothing. It's just to provide content for this podcast. That is it. Oh, okay. so you owe it to you actually owe it to this show. So. We'll set that up. <laughs> to get in the ring. Yeah. Hey, if you can land Tyson, I will get in the well, ring with him. We saw what a great performance Jose Canseco had in the ring last week. Uh, where he yeah. Basically, the, whoever he was fighting, I say that with quotes, looked at him and he fell down. <laughs> he made over a million dollars at that, though. So That's ridiculous. I guess good work. But if you can get it. <laughs> If you can, yeah. yes. All right, let's uh, let's let enough pugilistic talk here for this. This is a baseball history podcast. Last week on Wax Packs Heroes, we mentioned Storm Davis. I said, "Hey, I don't yeah. know. I don't know how he got the nickname Storm." I said, "Maybe we'll revisit it this week in in uh, Wax Packs Heroes, and never let it be said that we don't deliver on something that we promise on this show." So, to find the origin story of the nickname. We have to look no further than the back of Storm Davis's 1987 Tops card, which tells us that the nickname came from a character in a book that his mom was reading while she was pregnant with him. Well, there you go. Yeah, I was kind of hoping like he was born in the eye of a hurricane or something like that. But unfortunately, there's a lot more mundane. She just happened to be reading a book while she was pregnant. And there was a character apparently named Storm or... Something. Kind of anticlimactic. Are we sure she wasn't reading like X-Men? <laughs> well, I, I think that was before graphic novels. I, Did, I don't know. <laughs> like the 60s was before graphic novels? No. Uh, but you, I think we've mentioned this before, though. Storm Davis's parents are the adoptive parents of Glenn Davis. We've, oh, that's right. We've mentioned this yes. before because I, I think when we found out before, we were both like, whoa, that's pretty cool. And I'd forgotten. And then I saw that again and think, oh, I'm going to mention that again because Glenn Davis was pretty badass, too. Oh, Glenn Davis had his day. I tell you what, he should have been NL MVP in 86. Um, or is it 85? When they gave it to Dawson with the last place Cubs, I thought I Glenn it was Davis should have got it. Wasn't it? Was it? Yeah, might have been. Yeah, 87 or 88. I don't know. Now, the reason I, I say Dawson had a great year, don't get me wrong, may have had a better year than Glenn Davis, but how, how valuable, you're looking at valuable player, how, how valuable is a player to a last place team? Without Andre Dawson, guess what? They'd have finished last still. So that's kind of my argument. Yep. That's a, a well, I mean, Randy Johnson won the, the Cy Young when he was on the last place team. Um, Mike Trout. But it's not called most valuable pitcher. Continues to. <laughs> but I mean, it is essentially. But I guess you can win both. Never mind. All right. Let's. We don't like it. We'll we'll agree on that. Um, I did want to. Okay. I, I did want to get to something here because I want to get to our main topic here. I was doing uh, some reading and found a story about the 1976 Oakland Athletics. Now, I am going to come completely clean and say I do not know a whole lot about the 1976 Oakland Athletics. That is definitely in, you know, kind of a downtime. It's after the 
dominance of the early 70s and the uh, the three straight World Series wins. And before 79, when Ricky Henderson, you know, makes his debut, and then I really start to know a lot about the A's. So 1976, the A's stole 57 bases against the Minnesota Twins. Just against the Twins. Just against the Twins. They were thrown yeah. out 10 times. So you might, first of all, think that the Twins were maybe you know, bad defensively from the catcher spot, but that was not the case. Percentage-wise, mm-hmm. throwing out runners, they were actually best in the entire American League, but the A's huh. still stole 57 bases against them. Those 57 bases equate to 5,130 feet of steals. I don't know why I'm into this distance <laughs> thing lately, but I am. It's cool. And we're gonna it's go interesting. With it. Okay, so there are 5,280 feet in a mile. So they almost stole a mile's worth of bases against one team in one season. And, the, you know, the best <laughs> catching defensive team, they almost stole a mile worth of bases, which is incredible. Only they, baseball can give us such odd stats, man. <laughs> yeah, it's great. They, they played 18 times. Three games, the A's stole seven or more bases. And in one game, they stole 12 bases. The three catchers for the Twins that year were Butch Weiniger, who I've heard of. He had a, I think he had a pretty that's, long career. Uh, that's Butch Oil and Weiniger. Oh, very nice. Uh, Glenn Borgman, who I have not heard of. And Phil Roof, who I have heard of because he was the manager for the Salt Lake Buzz uh, the right. the triple A club for the twins at that time when I was interning in Salt Lake. So the A's stole 341 bases that season. The 1985 Cardinals, who we've talked about, I mean, that was a team of just incredibly fast players on an incredibly fast surface. They only stole 262 yeah. that year in 1985. Really? That's almost a hmm. hundred bases less than the six, uh, 76 A's. Wow. Billy North ended the season with 75 stolen bases for the A's. Bert Campanaris, good old Campy, had 54. Don Baylor had 52 stolen bases. What? Is there Don a Baylor world? Was quick. Yeah, is there a world that you can imagine Don Baylor had 52 stolen bases? I don't recall that, but yeah. uh, then again. Well, Claudel Washington also had 37, and Scrap Iron, Phil Gardner, also had 35. So, I mean, this team was... So, let's look. I'm just going to look here at Don Baylor. Don Baylor has 285 career stolen bases. And from 1972 wow. through 1979, he stole at least 22 bases every year. The, Jeez. Uh, wow. The, the, the 76 total of 52 was by far his career high. After that, he stole 32 bases two other times. But dude had some wheels early on in his career. I guess so. I only remember the older Don Baylor who can... Hit a ton, but, uh, you know, he was older. Yeah. So he wasn't stealing 50 bases then. Yeah. He, but he, that's amazing. So also, we think of Don Baylor, we think of hit by pitch, right? Because sure, yeah. <laughs> he led the league in hit by pitch of those years that I just mentioned where he was stealing four times. 
So he, he led it eight times overall in his career, but he was getting on base via a hit by pitch and then stealing quite a bit early in his career. That's great. And, and speaking of the hit by pitch from 84 through 87, he led the league four straight years in hit by pitch with 23, 24, 35 and 28. <laughs> wow. Yeah. For a total of 267 career hit by pitches. <laughs> a lot of Sounds ice baths. <laughs> no doubt. When you're done with that. All right. So uh, something that's been going around social media the last week or so, there was a, I think it was a TikTok video. I've seen it on every form of social media about a, a comedian. I want to say he's Dutch or something. He's, he's definitely got an accent where he's trying to explain baseball and just how crazy it is. And he's calling the bases pillows and calling batter stick men. And, you know, it's, it's, it's entertaining. I don't, I don't know how many of our listeners have actually heard Bob Newhart from the seventies do pretty much this exact same bit. You know, I guess imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I am going to put a link in the show notes to the Bob Newhart bit. And what Bob Newhart is doing is he is, on a phone call, because that's what Bob Newhart's famous for, if you don't know, is being able to just do these great phone calls like he's talking to somebody. And he'll do that Bob Newhart kind of stutter and repeat himself. I love I'm a big fan of Bob Newhart, but he does a pitch to a board game manufacturer about baseball and as if the guy had never heard what baseball was. And it's brilliant. And I'll put a link to it. You can watch it on YouTube and it's, it's essentially the same thing as this guy did last week. You know, you'll see where it originally came from. And uh, I, I actually linked, I responded to a couple of people that posted it and linked the Bob Newhart. And they're like, oh, I'd never heard that. And it's exactly the same thing better. So, all right, let's get on to trivia. I asked a question last week. Um, this is a, I, I would call this a moderately easy trivia question. We got several responses that were right. My question was this one player. Well, let me frame it this way. Number 42 has been retired across baseball. That happened many years ago in honor of Jackie Robinson. Any player, though, that was wearing number 42 when baseball unilaterally retired it was grandfathered in and could wear that number throughout the rest of their career. Mo Rivera, who is obviously not the answer to this question because he played for the Yankees right. his entire career, wore number 42 all the way up till couple years ago when he retired. So my question was, there was one player that wore number 42 and was the last to do so for three separate teams. Who was that player? you have any guesses? Um, no, I mean, I came up with a few guys that um, I, I know wore number 42, but I couldn't think of the three teams that they would, someone with uh, three teams. Um, I thought about Mo Vaughn, maybe because he was I would go with that I'd run with that that's the only one I could come up with all right well I'm going to tell you that's right can you name oh, yeah. me the three teams that he was on um he was on Boston yep and the well they were were they the California Angels then Angels of Anaheim um and I cannot think of the third one the Mets he spent time with the Mets oh there you go okay yeah he was with they were the they were the Disney angels at that point. It was the sleeveless look with the uh, angel wing on the hat and so forth. 
You remember that look? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and the giant Mickey Mouse in center field. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. well, that was Jim Edmonds in center field, actually. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. All right, so I got a new trivia question for you. This one's a bit harder. It involves one of your favorite players of all time that unfortunately passed away last year. Uh, the 1968 season is known as the year of the pitcher, mostly because of Bob Gibson's 1.12 ERA and Denny McLean's 31 wins. But who led the majors in strikeouts that year? Now, I'm going to give you a clue here. If you listen to the last episode of Baseball Beyond Batting Average, you might have a good guess. That was, uh, if you remember, a couple episodes ago, we did a split episode with Baseball Beyond Betting Average where we covered the 1990 season. Well, they just uh, they just did a Forgotten Players of the 60s episode. And they mentioned this guy who I have not forgotten because he's got one of my favorite nicknames for a pitcher. So uh, okay. if you do you have any guesses and I don't you might know this one because I know you know quite a bit about Bob Gibson and uh, especially his 1968 season. Do you have any guesses as to who led the majors in strikeouts that year? Well, we are we are pre Nolan Ryan here. Yes, so, and I'll give you this um, clue too. not a Hall of Famer. Oh, he's not. No. OK, well, I was going to guess Tom Seaver, but I guess I won't. Yep. No, that is uh, that is incorrect. So uh, a good guess, but again, not a Hall of Famer. Led the league uh, in in the majors. It's not Bob Gibson. It's definitely not Denny, Denny McLean. But uh, there you go. If you want a clue, go listen to the latest episode of Baseball Beyond Batting Average as well. Maybe I'll th- I'll throw them in the show links, show notes as well. There you go. We we like them. Let us uh, let the ground crew come out do their thing. And uh, we are going to, I'm going to hand it over to you essentially today, Mark. You have got a topic today that uh, you've allowed me to basically <laughs> do my own stuff this week. So uh, I am uh, I'm going to just sit back. I do have some information on your topic, but tell me, what do you want to talk about this week? I've heard proposals about changing the DH rule. We'll get into that a little bit later. But I started wondering. What was the history of the designated hitter? I mean, I, I know 73 is when the DH came into play, uh, but I didn't know a whole lot about uh, the history of the designated hitter. For example, can you tell me who the first DH was to ever uh, go up and, and get in that bat? I, I can. Do you, do you want me to spoil it? I can because I actually yes, saw ahead. something about him today. It would be Ron Bloomberg of the New York Yankees against Louis Tiant of the Red Sox. And let me tell you why I know this, because I just found out today that Ron Bloomberg wrote a book called The Designated Hebrew, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> It's awesome. And then that not led, to be confused with Hank Greenberg, the Hebrew hammer. No. Yeah. And, and and that led me to find out that Ron Bloomberg was actually a really hyped like prospect. He was a five tool prospect that I didn't know much about huh. until I saw this tweet today. And then I remembered what you were going to talk about. So I read this uh, this story. But don't let me don't let me keep you from telling <laughs> us the rest about Ron Bloomberg. The DH was a, a new concept you know to the players they you know we'll go into the history of it but it was it was a new idea so Blomberg he sought some advice from Elson Howard who was one of the coaches on the Yankees he asked him how he should uh, take on this new baseball position and uh, Elson Howard gave him the the wise answer of go hit and then sit down (laughs) so there you have it 
It's pretty much a DH right there. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining uh, us this week on Two Strike yeah. Noise. Well, oh, wait, no. There's Have more. a great day. <laughs> <There's> uh, more. <laughs> um, but see, the thing is, just because it was adopted in 73 doesn't mean it has deeper roots. Um, and to find to find beginnings of the DH, you have to go all the way back to 1887. There was a rule change in baseball where you could replace players on the field. You were allowed to have two players that could replace other players in the batting lineup and on the field. Before then, it was just you got your nine guys, you stay out there and you play the whole game. You could unless unless there unless you were deemed incapable of continuing. Sure. medically right this, this was the first time that you could actually put somebody in for no reason whatsoever other than you just wanted to try and win the game the, the magazine the sporting life was kind of the uh, we've talked about it before and quoted it a lot kind of the end-all be-all of baseball in uh, the late 1800s uh, and and to quote the rule it, it, this is simply it two players whose names shall be printed on the scorecard as extra players may be substituted at any completed inning by either club, but the retiring player shall not therefore participate in the game. That was actually your first pinch hitters or defensive replacements. So all the way back there, then it, it really started. So in 87, 1887, that is, they uh, came up with the ability to replace players in the lineup during the game. Um, but after that, people started to notice that pitchers, they just weren't keeping up. Um, <laughs> in the sporting life, they, uh, here's a quote from uh, December 19th, 1891. They said, every patron of the game is conversant with the utter worthlessness of the average pitcher when he goes up to try and hit the ball. Wow. Okay. Don't mince words, sporting life. Uh, utter worthlessness. Uh, they wanted to get rid of the utter worthlessness, apparently. So, actually, it's uh, March 12th, 1892, um, there was a vote to uh, exempt the pitcher from batting in a game. The captain of the team would notify the umpire of such desire prior to the beginning of the game. They were going to adopt it, but the vote was seven against five. And you had to have, I believe, two thirds um, in order to pass it. So it didn't quite pass. Do you know, uh, but do you know who was heading that? Heading that, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think it was that you only send eight players to the bat. There was no DH. You just were eliminating the pitcher. So your batting order was only eight players long. And do you know who yes, advocated that? I don't. I, I don't know. It was Albert Spaulding, our buddy. Really? Yeah, he's the one that yeah, came up Albert with that. Yeah, Albert comes into play a lot. Okay, see, now I didn't even find that out, and I was studying the DH. I'm glad you're doing some homework too, man. <laughs> um, but we'll take a look at, um, actually there's a chart and I'm going to try and just describe some well, of the good, numbers. Because from this the is chart. a podcast. So those usually, usually equate very good, right. very well. Do the stats back up the idea that pitchers couldn't hit. Um, in the 1870s, pitchers had an average batting, a uh, batting average of 235. Wow. Any pitcher would take that today in a heartbeat. <laughs> oh, absolutely. During the 1880s, that average slipped to 208. And pitching became more of an important role, as, we, as we've discussed before, in the game. Instead of just tossing it up there, you were trying to get someone to swing and miss. Um, and at the same time, uh, non-pitchers' averages decreased from 273 to 257. So it was a decrease of 0.016 
And uh, the difference between hitters, daily position players, and pitchers was uh, 0.038. And it went up to 0.049 as a difference. So just pitchers were just not hitting anymore. And so that's what kind of caused the idea of taking the bat away from the pitchers. Now we're going to the middle of the 1900s. Uh, designated hitter talk came up again. Uh, non-pitchers were batting 269, and pitchers were batting 190 from 1900 to 1905. The difference between position players and pitchers hitting was 79 points. And so none other than our buddy Connie Mack, Cornelius McGillicuddy himself, suggested the designated hitter. It wasn't really taken on as, as something exciting or possible, but uh, Connie Mack kind of thought, hey, you know what, we'll get some more offense into the game. To quote uh, the Sporting Life again about uh, the designated hitter, they said, against the change, there are many strong points to be made. It is wrong theoretically. It is a cardinal principle of baseball that every member of the team should both field and bat. Instead of taking the pitcher away from the plate, the better remedy would be to teach him how to hit the ball. (laughs) Okay, I got your point. Not so easy, maybe, but uh, if you're a real old school guy, that's that's a fact. That's what you wanted. You wanted to see the pitcher hit and pitchers pitchers just to uh, to do a better job hitting. You you said it right there in the in the late 1800s. Pitching became more specialized. It wasn't just lobbing the ball up there. You started with the rules where you had to keep your wrists straight. And then eventually, you know, you start to get to overhand. You you said it. You're trying to get people out. So you got to practice that. So you can't practice everything. So, yeah, I mean, it's pitchers became pitchers like we know it today. Yeah, I I see. I agree. I'm I'm not an anti-DH guy. I used to be. It's just become such an integral part of the game that it makes sense to me now. I, I'm sure that not all of our listeners agree, and there's a lot of purists out there, and I, I get that side too. But as you were saying, here's kind of Addie Joss, who was a pitcher for for Cleveland at the time. Here's kind of a, a hodgepodge of what everything ends up being. Addie Joss, who, and I'm quoting him, if the rule makers ever put through a rule to substitute a pinch hitter for the pitcher when it's the twirler's time to bat, there's going to be a mighty howl of objection raised by the slab men, that would be pitchers, if there is one thing that a pitcher would rather do than make the opposing batsman look foolish, it's to step up to the plate, especially in a pinch, and deliver the much-needed hit. Pitchers were pretty against it. Pitchers liked it. I liked to hit. We all liked to hit. You know, we don't we don't go out there to play defense. You, know, you can take pride in your defense, but we all want to go up there and hit the ball. Anybody that's ever played baseball, softball, whatever. That's the best part. That's the most fun part of the game to step up and hit the ball. And the pitchers, they felt that way, too. There was a lot of a lot of people lined up for it. A lot of people lined up against it. Uh, they decided they voted not to use it. But there was the famous Federal League. It's the uh, XFL to the uh, NFL. Yeah, it's kind of an outlaw league. They were they kind of did their own thing. Well, in 1914, they talked about and they actually used the term designated hitter. Nothing came out of it, but it was the first time that the designated hitter was mentioned. It's the idea of having your DH in there full time, not just pinch hitting every time the pitcher came up. There it was, in the, it was acting on the front burner now. John Hadler, he was president of the National League in the 1920s, and uh, he was a big proponent of the designated hitter. They called it, uh, at the time, the 10-man rule, meaning you had 10 players on your, on your roster or on your lineup, but only nine of them would hit, and the DH hitting for the pitcher. He said, here's a quote from, from Hadler, 
We have pitchers in our league. I don't know how many in the American that when they come up to the plate, they're absolutely a dead loss. Gum up the play, gum up the action. And he, he went on to substantiate his claim by saying, uh, looking over the averages I've taken our league, and I'm pretty sure it's true that the other league, out of the lowest 51 hitters, 47 were pitchers. The year before, 57 out of 62 worst hitters were pitchers. So this is, this is I, I saw something similar to this. And the arguments that people that, that, that wanted pitchers to keep hitting their arguments were essentially, yes, but there are some good pitchers. And those numbers you just True. gave said, sure, there were. There were a couple. <laughs> I mean, Babe True. Ruth was a pitcher when he started. Addie Joss is a Hall of Famer, and he was a good hitter. But what yes. th- that's like saying, though, if there was a cure for the common cold that cured one in ten colds, but the other, the other nine people were, were killed from it, they would just want to talk about that one person that was, that was cured. Or also, uh, last week, we, we played the audio of uh, Bartolo Colon's home run, his lone yes. home run, right? But we also talked about the hundreds of other at-bats he had where he was swinging so hard and missing and his helmet's coming off. It's like saying that uh, you just want to talk about his home run and forget all of, the other, <laughs> all of the other swings and misses or times that he didn't even take the bat off his shoulder. Sure, yeah. Absolutely. You know, and, and despite the uh, the pitchers having such a, a feeble attempt at the plate, it still was not adopted quite yet. Um, Sam Braden, he was the majority owner of the St. Louis Cardinals. He liked the DH, but he voted against it because he felt that baseball should not have so many specialists. He wanted to see a pitcher hit, uh, a guy playing the field hit, etc. Um, Boy, he'd hate the game today, wouldn't he? <laughs> Boy, I tell you what, lefty specialists, righty specialists. Oh my gosh, those all loogies and now. those uh, platoons out in the outfield. Ooh. Oh my, yep. To quote him, he said, "We have a specialist now. He is the pitcher. Instead, he proposed. I do think if we could give the manager the choice of whether he would have his pitcher hit each time at bat, or he can pass that time and let it go to the next man, that would eliminate the dead end of the ball game." So kind of a different take on it. Um, Walter Johnson, big train. He actually was in favor of the DH, even though he was not a he bad hitter. He was a hitter. great hitter, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, he had 24 home runs with a 235 average in over 21 years. Not bad. I mean, the guy could hit a lot better than your average, well, than Borcaro. Well, yeah, 1925, he hit 433. <laughs> wow. And that's with 107 plate appearances. Two home runs, That's six doubles, an OPS plus of 163. So this guy could swing a bat, and he's still like, yeah, I, I think we should DH. Yeah, he was all in favor of it. So kind of an interesting that between Addy Joss and Walter Johnson, completely different takes on the whole thing. I have uh, the Sporting News was now kind of standard writing about baseball. And in its uh, column called Caught on the Fly, January 2nd, 1941, they said a long-discussed experiment, elimination of the pitcher as a batter, will be given its first test next spring in state tournaments to be conducted by the National Semi-Pro Baseball Congress. So there we go. We have the DH being put into use in uh, semi-pro games. And what it, what it was actually was it uh, provided for the use of a pinch hitter each time for the pitcher, but the pitcher didn't have to come out of the game. So it wasn't a true designated hitter. But you could put in a pinch hitter for your pitcher, but he didn't have to come out of the game. 
So it's kind of a DH. Uh, we're heading that direction. Uh, the advocates of this rule said that the change would speed up play, which is the biggest deal in the world right now, speeding up play. It would assure the pitchers of a rest after each inning, and the batting order would be bolstered. Okay, good points uh, for the DH right there. It started to gain more speed. What was next was the 1941 experiment came to nothing, and nobody brought up the designated hitter again until the 1960s. And this is what you were talking about. It's 1968, the year of the pitcher. It was a rough year for hitters that year. <laughs> to say uh, the least. <laughs> there were, you know how many batters hit 300 or better? Only six. <laughs> Did Is that the year that Yastrzemski won the uh, batting title with a 301 average? When did he do that? That was a year prior, 67. Ah. And he won the triple crown with that 301 average, by the way. <laughs> Which I've always thought was odd, but you know what? Nobody was hitting right then. It just kind of shows you how good of a hitter Yaz was. Even when the deck was stacked towards the pitchers, he could still go up there and hit 300. People in Major League Baseball that were in charge, they suddenly realized, wow, the fans like good hitting more than they like good pitching. Well, not true of everyone. This is generally true. We like the home runs. We like the long ball. Remember, chicks dig the long ball, all that stuff. In an effort to revitalize the sport, the International League, which is a AAA league, started using the DH in all of its games in, starting in 1969. And it was such a positive experiment. Four other minor leagues were try, tried it out as well. At the conclusion of the experiment... Uh, neither the American or National League could agree on how to implement it. The American League voted in favor of the rule change. The National League voted against it. Sound familiar? Still that way. Sounds like Congress. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> a compromise they made was the American League would use a DH for three seasons beginning in 1973. And after that trial period, both leagues would either employ the DH or return to the pitcher being a hitter. So it was an experiment at that point. At the end of the three-year experiment, which was 73 through 75, the uh, DH was probably going to be adopted for all organized baseball. But the National League still wasn't quite ready to do it. So what happened was the wording of the rule, they changed it around so that the National League or the American League, you could have a DH, but you didn't have to. So the National League can continue to use their pitcher as a hitter and just ignore the DH. It was basically say anybody can adopt the DH by a majority vote. And when it was experimental, it required a 75% majority, but it was no longer experimental. It was optional. It was easier to adopt this new rule. The American League took it in. I saw an interesting story about the vote from the National League on whether or not they wanted to say, yes, we want that. We want the DH. I believe it was Philadelphia. The owner had said that, yes, he wanted to vote for the DH. And the owner of the Pirates said, vote however Pittsburgh or however Philadelphia votes. Whatever they say, you say the exact same thing. So as you mentioned, the wording was changed. And so the GM that was voting for Philadelphia couldn't get a hold of the owner. The owner was out that weekend on a fishing trip. And this is obviously before cell phones, social media, any of that kind of stuff. So he couldn't get a hold of the owner to ask him, hey, this has changed. Do we still want to vote? Yes. So he abstained. So immediately Pittsburgh abstained. And then a couple of other teams did too, which led to it not passing. Um, the American League, they wanted to keep the DH. 
And so uh, they, they reached a compromise and it was called the even odd era. So from 1976 through 1985, the DH was uh, in the world, employed in the World Series during even-numbered years, and odd-numbered years, the pitchers would hit. So kind of an advantage towards the American League there because of the, the National League did not employ a full-time DH on their teams, and the American League had someone who was a specialist. I beg to differ because if those American League pitchers are made to bat, they haven't picked up a bat in a year at least, Right. Well, the National right. League pitchers go up there and they've at least seen pitches and have swung a bat. So I mm-hmm. sure your DH might not be used to it, but those years when your pitchers have to bat, that is an automatic out, essentially. Sure. Most of the time. Yeah. I mean, most of the time heavily weighted towards out. Yes. Um, but it was kind of a, a batted around that uh, it was an advantage to the AL during even numbered years. Um, and, and you make a good argument against that too. So, hey, whatever, man. It, to each their own on the on the DH rule, right? There is no um, right or wrong answer here. We're just presenting that's both right. sides. After '85, so that would be. Let me think. Oh, '86. Yeah, uh, <laughs> they had a compromise called the "Win in Rome, Do as the Romans Do," <laughs> and that is what we have today. If you're an American League park and you're a National League team, UDH. If you're an American League team and you're in a National League park, your pitcher hits. Okay, so this is currently the way we still have it, when in Rome era, and it's still going on today. It's interesting because it seems to me that the a lot of people in the NL actually do want to see the DH happen, but they're, again, the purists. Uh, the first time it was utilized in an all-star game, the designated hitter, that is. It's the same rule, when in Rome. The very first designated hitter in an all-star game was a National Leaguer. Do you want to guess who it was? Pedro Guerrero. Boy, I want to guess. I told you, I've done a little research on this. And the first American League, Harold first American Baines. League DH was, was a guy who was famous for being a DH. Yeah. Harold Baines, exactly. Who was the first Hall of Famer who played the majority of his games at DH? Uh, well, I, I think it was Harold Baines. It was actually Frank Thomas. So, yeah, Frank Thomas, the first Hall of Famer who played the majority of his games at DH. Uh, one other one, Paul Molitor. And now we have Edgar Martinez, and, of course, Big Poppy's coming up. So the DH, you know, it's accepted in the Hall of Fame. It's accepted in baseball, except for the, the purists and the National League. And, again, I understand. I'm pro-DH at this point. But I understand that people who want to follow the purest rules of baseball the pitcher needs to hit, I get that. I'm not trying to belittle anyone else, anyone else's argument. I'm simply saying, you know, the DH does add a whole new level of specialist uh, players. And is that a good or a bad thing? I don't know. I find it to be uh, kind of a good thing. All right. So I got two additional things I want to add to the, to the, to your DH discussion here. Okay. Uh, first of all, let's jump back to 1929. I found an editorial cartoon that uh, you mentioned that there was the 10th man idea. So essentially what you've got in the American League since the 70s and, you know, through all of baseball last year, where your your lineup is 10 men. You've got a DH and then that pitcher goes in that 10th spot that doesn't bat. And in this cartoon, right. there's a dejected pitcher heading back to the bench muttering coises. You know, like curses, but I don't know, for some reason they made it be like, it's that, like a Brooklyn accent. I'm not exactly sure, but it's spelled C-O-I-S-E-S, coises. 
And the That's hitter, what Bugs Bunny used to say. <laughs> the the hitter Voices. is uh, walking past him with a bat to the plate, and he says, "The only job easier than this is a Christmas tree decorator." So I thought, first of all, if your job is a Christmas tree decorator, hey, that is very seasonal. So that's going to be hard to make yes. a living with. But today, I mean, DH is thought of as one of those harder, harder jobs because you're sitting on the bench for an hour at a time, like flicking sunflower seeds at people. And then you've got to grab a bat and go up there and face, you know, a, a major league Clayton Kershaw or, you know, right. <laughs> somebody like that. So it's kind of kind of weird that they thought that the DH was that easy of a job at that point. But yeah, it's it was it's a little more complicated now than uh, the Elson Howard comment. Go hit and then sit down. Yeah. Which I mean, it kind of encapsulates it. But like you said, um, it's a tough job now. It's it's very, taken very seriously. All right. The next thing I wanted to mention was, did you ever hear of the Phantom DH? No, I, I never heard of I, the only Phantom I know of is the one of the opera. So you got me. <laughs> so this is and this kind of goes along when when I brought up, well, that you, when you were talking about losing the DH, when your starter comes out, kind of takes away the whole opener strategy and stuff. Well, the DH listed in the starting lineup must be batted for at least once before being substituted unless there is an injury or the opposite team's starting pitcher has been changed according to the baseball rules. Now, this rule okay. was added after the 1980 season to close a loophole that was discovered by Orioles manager Earl Weaver. He would list one of his inactive starting pitchers in the starting lineup as a phantom DH and then when the first time that spot came up to bat, he could decide which of his players he would use to pinch hit for his DH, depending on the situation. So if there were right. men on base, he might put up, you know, a power, you know, a power hitter. If there was nobody on base, he might put on, you know, somebody in there in the DH spot that could get on base that walked or, you know, was a good average hitter. So pitcher Steve Stone and El Presidente Denny Martinez were used most often in this capacity. And of course, it takes an Earl Weaver to, to figure that out. Well, I'll just stick somebody that I have no intention sure. of ever standing up to the plate. And then I'll see what I want to do once the game starts. Earl Weaver's just incredible, man. The guy, the guy could yes. argue, but he had such a sharp baseball mind and that hidden yeah. pocket in his uniform for cigarettes is all i mean he's just <laughs> he's so interesting i i enjoy me some earl weaver very much so i i agree and a, a master strategist yeah you know and and the way he approached the game fun to watch his teams and it's fun to watch him because he was a little bit nutty all right mark well that was that was good that was interesting uh thank you very much for the history of the designated hitter now, let us get ready to go into our final segment of the show. It is a segment that is uh, known as Wax Packs Heroes. Wax Pack Hero! Gotta pull a Wax Pack Hero! All right, Mark, we've got a couple. I've got a couple of uh, singles packs again today. I've got a 1987 Fleer and a 1990 Fleer. Now, one of the things here is that uh, between 87 and 90, Fleer got cheap and they stopped putting as many cards in the packs. 
So the 87 pack has 17 cards. The 90 only has 15. So Ooh. what I've decided we're going to do as commissioner here is whoever has the 87 pack before I open it has to decide if they want to shift the first or the last card over to whoever has the 90 card so that we both have 16 cards. So that makes sense. I think that's fair. I am going to uh, give you the option here of deciding which would you like? Do you want the 90 or do you want the 87? I, I'm actually a big fan of the 87, that blue border. And uh, it's just a kind of a cool looking card. Not a big fan of the 90. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and take the 87. All right. So I'm going to have you go first. So once I open this pack, I will have you decide whether you want to take the top or the bottom. Obviously, I'm not going to tell you which is which or who, who they are. But uh, you can do that, and uh, that'll go over to me. If you are new, let's uh, quickly run over the rules here. We are going to be using the war for each of these players, depending on what year the card is from. So we will look at the baseball reference war there. If you have got a couple of things going on on this card, you can earn some extra war points or lose some. If you're sporting a mustache of any sort, you're going to get an extra tenth of a point. If you've got glasses of any sort, those big science teacher glasses or flip-down glasses or shades, anything fake, you know, Groucho Marx, fake mustache, doesn't matter. We're going to give you an extra tenth of a point. Uh, if you are wearing sweatbands that have your caricature, your jersey number, or a McDonald's logo on it, you're going to get an extra tenth of a point. If you're wearing real stirrups that we can see, you're going to get an extra tenth of a point. But if you're wearing the two-in-ones, those are a bad choice, and we're going to minus a tenth of a point of war. And if you have since become a Hall of Famer, you're going to get a whole point of war. Because, I mean, you're a Hall of Famer. That's, that's at least worth another whole, you know, win over average player. Definitely. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, baby. So, Mark, currently the standings uh, are as such. You are uh, pulling ahead. You've won 12. I have won 8. You, of course, are the defending champion. I have got your 87 Fleer here. I'm going to go ahead and open it. Uh, before I finish this, do you want to give me your last or your first card so that we've got the same amount? I, I'm going to give you card number one right off the top. All right. All right, put that there. You've got a couple of stickers here. You've got the uh, the dads and the Red Sox. The the Padres is the good one. It's at least for me. It's the brown and the kind of burnt orange. I like that one. Mm -hmm. but, uh, there you go. All right. So uh, we will be using 1987 Baseball Reference War on these uh, players for you. And because you've given me the first card, that means that we're going to start with your second card. And that happens to be a Hall of Famer. How about that? Unfortunately, when we say Hall of Famer these days, especially in these packs, we might be following it with the unfortunately recently passed away as we are here. It is with the California Angels. It is Don Sutton. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Don Sutton, over 300 wins in his career, uh, played forever and one solid pitcher. Yeah. So 1987, he was 42 years old. He still had wow. another season in him, though, after this. He went 11 and 11 with a 4.7 ERA. All of that equates to a war of 1.7. Plus, of course, he's a Hall of Famer, so that's going to immediately put you up to 2.7. So that's a good way to start out. I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah, I'll take it. Do you remember? Uh, I, I hadn't heard of his nicknames before. Do you remember his nicknames? I have no idea. So there was the mechanic, which I think probably has the same thing to do with Black and Decker because he was rumored to have been a doctor of baseballs throughout his career. So... I'm guessing both of those have to do with the same same thing. <laughs> All right. Next, we've got pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals. I remember this guy, lefty. It is John Tudor. Oh, sure. Uh, is it with the Cardinals? Yep. Yeah, I remember him being a pretty solid uh, pitcher for the Cardinals, a starter. They'll give you innings, you know. Um, if I remember right, he was pretty decent, too. 
Yeah, so 1985, we're, we're going by 87 for this pack, but 85, he led the league with 10 shutouts. He only had 16 yeah. in his career and never had more wow. than two in any other year. So he went wow. 21 and eight that year in 36 starts, a 1.93 ERA and a whip of 0.93. And I can, oh, wow. He came in second in the Cy Young that year. Really? How many innings did he toss? 275 innings. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So the Cy Young What's winner, done? the Cy Young winner that year was Doc Gooden, who went 24 and four with a 1.53 ERA. And a whip, oh, man, when you have a starter that throws over 30 games and their whip is under one, that's it. Yeah. Doc's ERA plus that year was 229. Really? Yeah, that is just incredible. Let's see. War-wise that year in 1987, he came up with a 1.7 war. He does have real stirrups as well, so that'll get you a plus 1.8. So that's a good way to start. Next is a guy that became a pitching coach for quite a while. I'm not sure if he's still a pitching coach or not, but here he is with the California Angels. It's Vern Rule. Oh, for Vern Golden Rule. Sure. Let's see. He pitched for 13 years in the big leagues. 86 was his final year, so he actually did not make the majors in 87. So that'll get you nothing, and there's nothing on the card that's going to help. <laughs> Great. I appreciate that. <laughs> Next, you have got, he is listed as very apropos of today's episode. He's listed as a DH for the uh, Toronto Blue Jays. It's Cliff Johnson. I do have some memory of him, but I mean, he was all the way up in the north, you know. Well, he, he won two World Series in the late 70s with the Yankees. This is, uh, this is a, becoming a trend. 1986 is his last year in the big leagues. So he, again, did not make the team or retired, but he does have a big, bushy mustache. So that'll at least get you 0.1 on that, and that'll bring you up to 4.6. Next, this guy I remember because for some reason in Salt Lake, we could pick up the Dodgers broadcast, radio broadcasts at night. So I got to hear Vin Scully, and this guy was my favorite team on the Dodgers in the 80s. It's first baseman Greg Brock. Oh, man, Greg Brock. Yeah, um, gosh, I, you know what? I thought he was an outfielder for some reason. Yeah, he only he only played first base. And then in his brief, well, no, he was in Milwaukee for five years. He DH'd there. But yeah, in okay. LA, he was, always, uh, he was always a first baseman. 87 was actually his first year in the American League. Still hit almost 300, 299, had a 112 OPS plus. And that equates to a war of 1.8. And uh, there's nothing on the card that'll get you any more, but a 1.8 is nothing to sneeze at. Cliff Johnson. Next. Oh, we've talked to, man, we like this guy. Outfielder for the Toronto Blue Jays, Jesse Barfield. Absolutely. The gun of the arm, the uh, the power. Dude was awesome. Yeah, Jesse Barfield. Let's see. He, you know, it seems like he played more than 12 years, but that's what he did. Nine in Toronto and then ended up with the last four in New York where he, uh, he left just before they started, retired just before the Yankees started to win World Series. Uh, in 87, uh, wow, he was only an all-star one time, and that was in 86. Oh. 87, he had a little bit down year because he had a career year in 86. Hit 263, an OPS plus of 105, and that equates to a war of 4.7. Very nice. Uh, he does have well, a mustache as well, so that's a 4.8. So good for, good for Jesse. That will bring your total up to 11.2. Wow, you're getting some some great Dodger players here. Another pitcher for the Dodgers. It is 
Fernando Valenzuela. You know, we need to do a show on Fernando Mania. I, I have that on my list of future topics is <laughs> Fernando Mania. Yeah. So obviously a, a dominant pitcher in his time and uh, someone that was really fun to watch. Yeah, so looking at his baseball reference page, just up top where they've got his superlatives, Cy Young, Rookie of the Year, six-time All-Star, 81 World Series, Gold Glove, two-time Silver Slugger, talking about pitchers that could hit. Yeah. 87, a down year for for, uh, Fernando, 14 and 14. Still managed to lead the league with 12 complete games. Uh, Let's see. In 87, all that equates to a war of 4.1. Wow. Oh, wow. Fernando Mania strikes again. Yeah, so nothing on the card that's going to help you, but that'll get you up to a 15.3. Next, we've got Catcher that has since gone on to manage, uh, I think most notably with the Rockies. Here he is with the Cardinals. It's Clint Hurdle. Yeah, Clint Hurdle, uh, a catcher. I remember him being uh, pretty good defensively. I don't remember how how he could hit, though, so you're going to have to tell me. Uh, He was a good catcher (laughs) defensively. Uh, His career year (laughs) was... Clearly in 1981 when he hit 329, but that was only in 28 games. Uh, his career ah. average was 258, and 1987 was his final year in baseball, and he only appeared in three games. So <laughs> that's not going to help you out. His war was 0.0, and there's nothing on this card, so that's just a, a wash there. Next, I we drew the uh, all-retired players. Uh, yeah, you really back. did. <laughs> Next, we've got a pitcher for the Rangers, Dale Mahorchik. And I believe Name sounds familiar. But. Well, I think it's familiar because I think we've we've drawn him before and we neither of us had any idea who he was. Right. Mohorchek. Let's see. He only pitched only again. He pitched for five years in the big leagues. I would cut off both of my arms to spend five years in the big leagues. Uh, 16 oh, and 21 overall. Actually, probably his best season in 87. He went seven and six had an ERA plus of 150. That's nothing to shake a stick at. That all equates to a war of 3.1, and he's got a pretty good mustache on there, so that'll give you a 3.2. Way to go, Mohorchik. Sounds more like a hockey player, but okay. Next, we've got a pitcher for Cleveland. I don't remember this guy, but he's going to get you some some additional scoring. It is Ernie Camacho. Ernie Camacho? Yeah, it doesn't ring a bell for me either. Let's see. Uh, just by the way, he's the only Ernie Camacho to ever play in the big leagues. Uh, Ten-year wow. career. I would hmm. have never guessed that. He came up with Oakland in 1980. 1987 was spent with Cleveland at 9.22 ERA. So hmm. let's see what, what that equates to war-wise. That is a minus 0.7. But he has got some science teacher glasses on and he's got a mustache. So that'll bump it down so you're only minusing a point five. Yeah. Next, Thanks, Ernie. Pitcher for the Expos, Floyd Yeomans. You know, I only remember him because I like the name Yeomans. Isn't because yeah, I wasn't familiar with it. Yeah, and isn't there a phrase like a yeoman's effort? Something like that it means you like you gave it a good good shot. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I guess that might not be what you want to be called as a, as a pitcher or a baseball player in general. It was a yeoman. It was a yeoman type effort. But uh, 1987, wow, 9 and 8, 4.64 ERA. He definitely got into ball games, uh, started 23 of them. All of that equates to a war of 1.0, and he's got a mustache. So that'll get you a 1.1. Wow. 
Next outfielder for the Cincinnati Reds, it is Max Venable. Yeah, I, I remember the name. It's yeah, I remember the name, too. He is the father of Will Venable, who we probably remember a little bit more. I vaguely remember Max. He played, yeah, he was on the Angels from 89 through 91. I'm going to guess that's where I really know him from. In 87, though, he got hurt and only appeared in seven games for the Royals. So you're probably not going to get a lot here. A war of minus 0.2, but he's got science teacher glasses and a mustache. So that ends up being a complete wash for you, which is good news. I'll take it. Yeah. With that, I think that's a good uh, outcome. Now, here is outfielder for the Twins, and I'm a little disappointed. It's Mickey Hatcher, but it's one of the cards where he is not carrying his large, oversized novelty baseball glove. Oh, bummer. Uh, I think he's only got two, but the fact that he's got two baseball cards with that large novelty glove is pretty cool. Uh, Of course, Mickey Hatcher was on that 88 Dodgers World Series team. 87, not a bad year. Had a 101 OPS plus, and that equates to a war of 0.8. Nothing else on the card is going to get you anything, but headed in the right direction. It's positive. I'll take the positive. Yep. Here is a catcher for Atlanta, Bruce Benedict. Remember him from those bad, bad teams. 12 years in his big leagues, in his big league career, all of which were with Atlanta. Uh, 1987 for Bruce, not a great year. Didn't uh, didn't spend the whole year in, uh, with the big club. Only hit 147, but, you know, of course, defense does weigh into this. Minus 0.6 war, though, and nothing on the card is going to get you anything. So that's going to, you're going to take Benedict. a hit. Hit there, you're at 19.3 with two cards left. Your second to last card was one of my friends growing up, his favorite player for some reason. It is for the Phillies, outfielder Milt Thompson. <laughs> oh, Milt Thompson, no, he was a pretty good ball player. He did a, you know, he had a pretty good career. Ended up, he coached, I know, for quite a while as well. Milt, his nicknames were Papa Thompson, Uncle Milty, and Scooter. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Milty, that's great. Uncle Milty, yeah, that's a Milton Burrow reference. I I said his name wrong. Milton Burrow reference. Is that Burrow? Burrows? Burrow. B-R-L-E. Yeah. You said it. It's a, I'm assuming that's a reference to him. 1987 was probably his best year. Uh, Hit 302 for a 103 OPS plus 17th in MVP voting. And all of that equates to a 4.0 war. Not bad. I'll take that. Yeah, Yeah. nothing on the card is going to get you anything else. But with one card left, that brings you up to 23.3. And your final card, the one that I was kind of hoping you would have given me, is pitcher for Uh the Royals, reliever for the Royals. Probably the best uh, known baseball player to who has a last name that starts with Q. I'm imagining it's Dan Quisenberry. (laughs) There you go. It's the quiz. Yeah. Hey, our our past guest and uh, just incredibly talented uh, artist at Danny Champion recently released a a Dan Quisenberry comic book cover that was really cool. Maybe go check that out. But yeah, the quiz, Dan Quisenberry, one of the staples of not just the Royals, but 1980s bullpen Mm -hmm. pitchers. I mean, the guy was really... uh, Really got a lot of black ink here for games, games finished, and then saves. He led the league in saves five out of six years from 80 to 85. That's impressive. Yeah. So in 1987, he was 34 and did not have a really great year. Uh, He did manage to 
get a 1.7 war. Of course, you're going to get points for a mustache, and it's Dan Quisenberry, oh, yeah. so you're going to get two tenths because that's a good mustache. So you'll get a 1.9. Yeah, he, he yeah, he, he yeah, always had go. a good one. So that'll bring your total up to 25.2. It's a pretty good. Respectable. Yeah, no, that's a that's a pretty good score there. All right, so we're going to jump over to my pack now. I'm going to start out with your card that you gave me. It is uh, probably not going to get me a lot of value, but one of our favorite, favorite players, it's pitcher here for the Astros, Larry Anderson. Oh, that's Anderson, Andy, E-R-S-E-N, by the way. Just a jokester. And I'm looking here at his nicknames. One of his nicknames is L.A., Larry Anderson. Another nickname is Mr. Jello, which... We did a whole freaking episode on Jello Gate, and he was at the root of that when he was on the Mariners, messing yes. around with his manager Jim Lefevre. If you don't know that story, go back and listen to that. But that was great. So I'm going to judge him on his 87 because that's what this card is from. Had a well, had okay. a pretty good year. Nine and five, three point four ERA. Uh, that equates to a ERA plus of one fourteen. And all of that equates to a war of 0.9. He's got a good mustache. Uh, I'm not going to say it's a two-pointer, but it's a good one. So I'll start out with an, with an even 1.0 there. Then I'm going to open up my pack here of 1990 clear. And uh, I got a Detroit Tigers sticker. So Sweet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. We're going to start out here. Lefty for the Bucks. It's pitcher Neil Heaton. Yeah, I remember Neil Heaton. Um, boy, I couldn't tell you a lot about him. I thought he was a good pitcher, though. I would say if Berman didn't call him Neil bringing the Heaton, uh, there's something wrong with Chris. Well, there is something wrong with Chris Berman, but we're not going to talk about that. Uh, Neil Heaton pitched for 12 years in the big leagues. 1990, uh, he came out of the pen 42 times, ended up with an ERA plus of 83. So I'm not expecting a whole lot here. That equates to a war of 0.8. Boy, that does not, those are, those are fake stirrups, but he's got a mustache. So that's a wash and yeah. that'll give me a 0.8. So I'll, I'll take that as long as I'm moving forward. That's all I look for. Next, we've got pitcher for the Mariners. Now I don't remember this guy, Jerry Reed, not Jody Reed of the Red Sox, but Jerry Reed. I have no idea who that is. <laughs> Any recollection of Jerry Reed for the Mariners? Cause I am not, I'm not remembering him. He was around for a while, spent nine years in the big leagues he apparently started the year with the Mariners, appeared in four games, and then was shipped off to Boston. Let's see. For 1990, his war was a minus 0.2. He's got some fake two and ones. So that's a minus 0.3, but he's got a mustache. So that will actually knock me down to a minus 0.2. All right. Next, we've got a pitcher for the Cardinals. It is Ken Daly. I have a bit of I mean, it sounds familiar, and I, I actually remember him. As uh, oh wait no I don't I'm thinking of someone else never mind. <laughs> uh, so yeah, spent 11 years in the big leagues, a bulk of it seven years with the Cardinals, four and four in 1990, appeared in 58 games uh, as a middle reliever, ERA plus of 107, so we should probably get something decent here, a WAR of 0.3, and I'm not going to get anything else out of that card, so that'll bring me up to 1.9. I got a Hall of Famer, finally, here. It Uh-oh. is uh, with the Boston Red Sox. It's the chicken man, Wade Boggs. One of the finest hitters I ever saw. Yeah, now, I think you pulled a Wade Boggs last week, and it was his worst year. It was his final year with the Red Sox, which was his worst year in baseball. 
that would have been 1992, which, yeah, we opened up 92 score last year. In 1990 yep. for Wade Boggs, he hit 302, no shocker there, ended up with an OPS plus of 122. Not much for power except for 1987 when he hit 24, inexplicably. Let's see, hmm. all of this equates to war of 3.2. Of course, he has got a mustache. I can't yes. see anything else here, but he's also a Hall of Famer, of course. So that will give me an addition of 4.3. I will take nice. that all day. That brings me up to 6.2. Next outfielder for the White Sox, it's Dave Gallagher. Hmm. Uh, was he a stand-up comic? Yes. Uh, the Smash-O-Matic. <laughs> I think that was his big thing yes. with the yeah. big mallet. The, uh, yeah. Yeah. Sledgematic, yes. Sledgematic, yeah. No, this is actually an outfielder for the White Sox. He ended up with a nine-year career scattered over six or seven teams here. 1990, however, he was in Baltimore as well as Chicago and did not perform well in either <laughs> location <laughs> and uh, actually accrued a war of minus 0.4 between the two of them. He does have real stirrups, though, and he does have a mustache, so... That'll help me a little bit. That'll only nick me 0.2. Next, we've got pitcher lefty starter for the Reds. This guy had a couple of good years. Danny Jackson. I remember Danny Jackson. Yeah, he did have, um, for a while, he was he was a pretty, like, a staple as far as good pitching. Yeah, he was a two-time All-Star, won the World Series twice, once with the Reds in 90, and then in 85 with the Royals. In uh, oh. 1990, he was with the Reds, as I said, went 6-6, six and six, Started 21 games, had an ERA of 1.1, and that equates to a war of 1.6. He's got real stirrups, and that's it. So that'll get me a 1.7 in the positive category. Next, I don't know. The first thing I think of when I get an Otis Nixon card is cocaine. The second thing I think about is that catch he made at Fulton County Stadium where he climbed center field and reached over the wall and, and robbed a home run from I don't remember who. But it is Otis Nixon here with the Expos. Yeah, Otis, um, he was uh, an interesting player. He really he could play some great defense out there. And if I remember right, he could steal a few bases. Guy was quick, never led the league in, in steals, but ended up with 620 career stolen bases. And yeah, not definitely bad. quick. Not a bad, uh, not a bad center fielder either this year in 1990 ended up with a OPS plus of 81 for a leadoff batter though he his on base was only 331 so Hmm. not a not a great job of getting on base see all of that equates to war wise a 1.5 he always had that little wispy mustache too so that'll get me a 1.6 at least and that will bring me up to 9.3 I've talked about this guy before pitcher Closer at one point for the Mariners, Mike Schooler. Yeah, Mike Schooler, um, he was he was at one point a closer, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, because he gave up a lot of grand slams, I remember, as a closer. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah. In 1990, uh, that wasn't the year he gave up all his grand slams. He did, he did go one and four, not great. One and seven the year before, but a 2.25 ERA and an ERA plus of 1.75. Uh, boy, the Mariners were just hmm. bad. They were just bad. Uh, 1.3 war, and then he's got a mustache as well. So that'll get me 1.4. And as a pitcher, he's got a batting glove, you know, on his hand under his glove here. So he's trying to look tough. Next, we've sure. got pitcher for the San Francisco Giants. I believe his nickname was Big Daddy. Do you know who I'm talking about? Um, 
Was it Rick Rushel? There you go, Rick Rushel. Let's make sure that I'm remembering the big daddy. Yep, big daddy, Rick Rushel. His, his rookie season was 1972, and he pitched to 1991. Wow, wow. <laughs> that's a career. That really is. Two-time Gold Glove winner, three-time All-Star. 1990 was the second to last year at age 41. The year before, at age 40, he was an All-Star. At 41, he went 3-6 and six with a 3.93 ERA. That equates to an ERA plus of 93 and overall a war of 0.8. He's got real stirrups on, so that'll get me a 0.9. I'll take it. I'm running out of cards here, though, and I got some ground to make up. Next pitcher for the Detroit Tigers it is Kevin putting on the Ritz. Kevin Ritz. You know, I, I, the name is familiar, but I couldn't tell you anything about him. I just remember his nickname from, from Berman. 1990 was his second year in the league. Went 0-4 with an 11.05 ERA. <laughs> wow, that beats a 12. <laughs> <laughs> that equates to a minus .6 war, and there's nothing on this card that's going to help me. So that I'm going in the wrong direction. I'm at 11 even with just a couple of cards left. Next, we've got a friend, a, a childhood friend of Ricky Henderson, here he is with the Los Angeles Dodgers. It's Alfredo Griffin. Alfredo Griffin, uh, shortstop, right? Yep, he was a shortstop mainly and then also just played everywhere in the infield later in his career. He played for a lot of different teams, too, if I remember right. He was an A for a while, an A. Yep, he was an A for a while, came up with Cleveland. Toronto is where he spent the bulk of his career, eight years there. Also, the Dodgers and, uh, as we mentioned, Oakland. In 1990, he only hit 210, appeared in 141 games, though. That leads us to a war of minus 2.3. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. He was not good defensively at this point. 26 errors in 1990. That is uh, not good. A fielding percentage of 0.959. That's not good. Let's see. He's got a mustache, so that'll at least help me out a little bit. But a, what did I say, a minus 2.3, so minus 2.2. I think Alfredo Ouch. might have just sunk me there. Yeah, he uh, he may have put the nail in your coffin there. All right, pitcher for the Astros, Dave Smith. Dave Smith, uh, he was a closer for a while. Let's see, Dave Smith was a two-time All-Star. One of those was 1990, went 6-6, six and six, um, and was a closer. Yeah, he closed for a good bit of his career. Only had 23 saves this year. But that does get me a war of 1.7. Nothing on the card's going to help me out. And next is pitcher for the Oakland Athletics. It's Mike Moore. It was one of those. You really probably remember a lot more about him than I do. Yeah, he was one of those good number four or five pitchers. I mean, he's, you know, had Stu at the top of the rotation. And yeah, I think he was usually, he and Kurt Young were usually those four and five guys. Right, right. 1990, um, what, 13 and 15? You know, the A's were still pretty good in 1990. 90, yeah, best record in baseball, pretty good. Uh, but 13 and 15, 4.65 ERA, not uh, looking for a big number here. War-wise, it is a minus 1.5 and nothing on the card is going to help me out. So I am just going the wrong way. I don't think Ken Patterson from the Chicago White Sox is going to help me out particularly. No, but it's a quite a collectible card, I'm sure. In the Patterson household, it most definitely is. 1990, however, he went 2-1, and one, appeared in 43 games. So uh, pretty good out of the bullpen. That gets me a war of 0.6. Nothing on the cards can help me, but it's the first positive number I've had in quite a while. And then my final card, which, let's see, you scored a final total of 25.2, and I'm at 9.6. 
So I don't think a, I don't think a single player has ever had a war of 14 ish in a season. And I can tell you that Roberto Kelly definitely never did. <laughs> Maybe Hack Wilson. <laughs> uh, well, we'll look that up in a minute. I know Hack had a lot of RBIs. I'm not sure if Hack Wilson's war was ever really that high. <laughs> uh, 1990. Roberto Kelly. Yeah, solid, solid defensive outfielder. And he could hit. Yeah, so 1990, he appeared in 162 games. So was a very healthy player. Oh. <laughs> 285, yes. a OPS plus of 106, and a war of 5.5. He's got a mustache as well, so that'll get me 5.6. I think 5.6 is about as much as you can ask for a player in a single year. That'll bring my sure. that'll bring my total to 15.2. Do you want to give me the war of Hack Wilson's best year war wise, and we'll add that to my total and see what it gets me. Let's see what it let's see what it turns out and then I'll tell you yes or no it's okay. <laughs> All right, so Hack Wilson's best year was probably 1930. Of course with the Cubs, he hit 3 it was slashed 356, 454, 723 for an OPS of 1.177 and an OPS plus of 177. Led the league in walks. Of course that was his year he drove in 191 runs and hit 56 dongs and that equates to a war of whoops, let me get down to the old war column 1937.4 yeah that's not bad are, are you gonna <laughs> give it to me yeah it's all yours <laughs> all right so if i add hack wilson's best warrior that brings me to 22.6 still well shy of your uh, 25.2 <laughs> but we got to talk about hack wilson <laughs> yeah, man, that is uh, it's a good year. And it didn't even get MVP votes. Not a single yes. MVP vote. Wow. That's frightening. Yeah. All right. So that'll do it. Uh, we'll put another notch uh, in your lipstick case, I guess, there. You're at eight. Uh, or I'm at eight wins. You're at 13 wins now. Uh, I'm not sure if anybody caught that Pat Benatar reference, but I'm going to. I did. I did. (laughs) All right. So let's start to wrap up the show. We want to thank our listeners as usual. We really do appreciate it. Uh, If you want to hear more of us, see more of us, see what we're thinking throughout the week in between when we're uh, dropping podcasts, you can catch us on social media. We are at two strike noise. That is at T W O strike noise on both Twitter and Instagram. You can also find us on YouTube. Just go ahead and search for two strike noise podcast. You should find us there. Mark, they can also uh, call our toll free number or, Oh wait, no, that's out of order. So they're going to have to hit us up on email. That's right. You can email us though at two strike noise, spell it out. T W O strike noise at gmail.com. I, we should get a nine, seven, six number. Are those still That's around? A good idea. Yeah. Uh, I, I call them all the time. A <laughs> dollar 50 for the first minute and then 75 cents each additional minute after that. You know what though? I found a secret to that. Um, instead of staying on and getting charged extra, you just hang up and call back. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the math was never a strong. This is why I keep score during wax facts. Here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is true. All right. Well, that's another episode. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody again for listening. And uh, you know what? We'll be back next week for another episode of Two Strike Noise. Thank you. God bless you. Have a great day. 